Did you know that the Salem witch trials had more to do with a Reuben sandwich than actual witchcraft? Find out how that could be the case on this episode of Delicious History. Welcome back to the show. My name is Dave Militello. Delicious History is a weekly podcast designed to show not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, check us out on our Instagram and Facebook pages, both at Delicious History Podcast or delicioushistorypodcast.com. Uh, I'm not happy this time of year. I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't like Halloween. I never did. Um... I'm the kind of person that really dreads the end of October and just waits for November to roll around. I personally have a lot of reasons for feeling that way, but hey, I understand that to each their own. The reason I bring that up is because this time of year people are talking about spooky things like vampires, zombies, and yes, witches. Believe it or not, most of these mythological creatures that people dress up as during Halloween actually have firm roots in real history. Unfortunately, when you look at the real stories of these monsters, it's less Twilight and more Scooby-Doo. People still watch Scooby-Doo, right? Alright, well, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, Scooby-Doo is a show where there's some sort of creature or monster that's causing problems somewhere and the gang has to come and figure out what actually is going on. At the end of the episode, the creature ends up getting tied up somehow and his mask is taken off and it turns out it was just some dude trying to scare people for some reason and they would have gotten away for it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Or for the people that have actually reached out to me and told me they want more Star Trek references, first of all, I do this for you. And second of all, it's just like that episode in The Next Generation uh, where that planet started to get earthquakes and natural disasters and all of a sudden their devil shows up and tells them it was their end times. But not only was she the devil for that planet, but she was also the devil for the Klingons and Earth. But of course, at the end of the episode, it turns out she was just a con artist that really knew how to use holograms pretty well. And while that's certainly true with most mythological creatures, with witches, we take that a step further. Because not only are the stereotypical witches not something that we should really necessarily fear, but there's actually a reason to feel bad because they represent innocent victims. Before we go any further, I do want to bring up the fact that obviously, yes, witches are a real thing. Um, By definition, a witch is a woman who practices magic, typically the black arts, and they showed up on the earth in just about every culture you can imagine, and tons of religious texts. Also, the modern-day practitioners of the Wiccan religion, they'll oftentimes refer to themselves as witches, more as a badge of honor. But what we're talking about today is more the stereotypical witch. You know, the one with the tall hat, the the bubbling cauldron, the black hat, the big nose with all the warts all over. Believe it or not, this depiction of a witch is actually the product of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. And beer. So, Protestant Reformation plus beer equals witches. Okay, of course, you know, I'll explain. See, during the 16th century, Central and Northern Europe started to have their differences with the Catholic Church and their allies in Southern Europe. One of the reasons for that was that they felt the Catholic Church was too permissive of certain practices and even types of people. During the early years of the Christian Church, witches of all types were considered to be worthy of death. But as time went on, those in power in the Catholic Church, they stopped having that stance. 
For one thing, there was a differentiation between white witches and black witches. Basically, those who uh, use their magic for something benevolent or something with bad intent. In the 8th century, for example, it was outlawed to accuse anyone of being a witch, and anyone who burned a witch was punished by death themselves. I'll even tell you a little bit of an idea of how witches changed uh, in more Catholic parts of Europe. One of my favorite examples was that in Italy, where Santa Claus, he does exist in modern times there, but he's more of a modern phenomenon. Their traditional Christmas time person is La Bufana, a kindly witch. Her story is that when Jesus was born and the three wise men were on their way to meet him, they got lost along the way and decided to stop by and ask for directions at a witch's house, as one does. When she gave them the instructions, they asked her if she'd like to come along with them. She said, yeah, sure, but I just need to finish cleaning my house. Can you wait for me a little bit? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, no problem. So she finally gets around to finishing her chores, and then she gets a sack and fills it up with all kinds of gifts to give to little baby Jesus, and goes outside to meet the three wise men. But it turns out they didn't wait for her, because, well, men lie. She goes off trying to find them, but never quite catches up with them. And as a result, every January 6th, known as Three Kings Day, La Bufana travels with her sack of gifts, and instead of just wasting them, she throws them into the windows of good little Italian boys and girls. Of course, as nice and cute as the story is, this was exactly the type of attitude Protestant Europe found off-putting. Just like your friend that recently found religion, Protestant Europe at the time started to become super dogmatic and fundamentalist, and the way that they designed their society and even the way they spoke to one another reflected that. I mean, just look at the English Revolution and how when the parliamentalists got together, they had to say that it was a prayer meeting before they felt comfortable getting together to plan down the takedown of the monarchy. Two things that are going to play a big role in our story was the return of gender norms and the newfound obsession with rooting out witchcraft in society, with the Catholic Church following suit as a reaction to the Protestant complaints. That second part is kind of strange because, well, I can't really find any statistics about witchcraft at the time, I'm not really convinced it was all that widespread, at least not how people thought it was. But one thing that was widespread was beer. I'm not sure if there's any connection, but countries that typically drink beer compared to wine were the ones that got involved with the Protestant Reformation, uh, such as the German principalities and the British. Remember that Germany still wasn't a unified nation for hundreds of years at this point, so really we are talking about independent principalities who were somewhat under control of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Something that we may not take into consideration in our modern-day society is the question of who makes beer? I mean, if personally, if you were to ask someone to picture a brewer in their mind, what do you think they'd see? Probably a dude with a flannel shirt, maybe a hipster beard? But for the vast majority of history, brewing was something that was considered a woman's job. In fact, pre-Christian Europe deities were almost exclusively women when it came to brewing, such as Gabjuaja in Lithuania, Minnie in Germany, Albina in Wales, and Bridget in Ireland. These were all goddesses that seemed to play a role in brewing because women were the ones doing the work. But this type of brewing was traditionally something of the more domestic nature, consumed by the family and possibly neighbors, but that was about it. During the time period of our story here, commercial brewing started to become more popular, and people who were behind these commercial breweries were often men. In a way to root out their competition, many of these brewers decided to take advantage of the hysteria that had taken place in recent years and simply accuse female brewers of being witches. They said they weren't actually brewing beer in their cauldrons, but rather some sort of magic potion. As a result, sadly, women had two options. 
either keep their mouth shut and try to be a good wife or daughter as society dictated at the time, or die. If somebody was accused of being a witch and they were found guilty, they were typically burned at the stake. And the reason for this is because many people at the time felt that if your body was burned, that it would not be able to receive a judgment. And that would be basically finalizing your death and damnation. Obviously, this would have been a massive blow to any advances women were making in equal rights at the time because essentially any woman who is problematic in any way, either by speaking her mind or demanding to be treated like another human being, would simply be labeled as a witch. With this, basically anything that identified women as brewers at the time became the mark of a witch. To differentiate themselves from other vendors at the market, for example, the women would wear tall spindly hats so they could be easily recognized. Now, that's the perfect symbol of a witch. They also used to sweep the floor quite a bit because of all the grain they had to malt. That turned into flying on broomsticks. Of course, they had to boil the wort before they could brew it, and that became the bubbling cauldrons. Because they had so much grain sitting around, mice and rats became an issue. The simple solution was to have cats around, but now cats, and black cats in particular, became the mark of a witch. The last thing, honestly, I really don't like all that much is the big warty nose. And that's because it was just an insult to injury. Because they were saying, yeah, witches, you know, they have all these characteristics, but they're also ugly on top of it. And that's really the only reason for the, the big warty nose. Beyond just trying to get rid of the competition, witch accusations were extremely important because people felt that if God was on their side, there had to be an explanation for bad things happening in society such as crop failures or sicknesses in the community. After all, these were obvious signs that God was turning their back on them, and these were very superstitious times. If everyone was going to church every Sunday and living a good Christian life, the only explanation that could be had when these sort of things happened was that there must be a witch in the community that needed to be rooted out. Now that we have this understanding of what was going on in Europe at the time, let's move our story to the British colony of Massachusetts in the year 1692. Remember, this was well before the American Revolution, so technically this was still British territory. Specifically, we're going to be focusing on both the town and the village of Salem, Massachusetts. If you grew up in the United States, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the pilgrims that came to the New World in search of religious freedoms. Of course, we're not talking about general religious freedom like was later granted under the United States Constitution, but rather religious freedom for their own beliefs. The type of people that settled in New England were a special breed of Puritans, who felt that the Puritans in England weren't quite... pure enough. Remember how I mentioned how these witch trials really came about because people were becoming religiously fanatical at the time? Well, imagine people that were so much more fanatical that they felt that the people already burning witches in Europe hadn't gone far enough. And you have yourself the village of Salem, Massachusetts. The story of the Salem Witch Trials is one that's extremely complex and honestly, devastatingly heartbreaking. I'm going to be talking about details of the story, but we're not going to be going too deep into the woods here because I'm going to be talking about its connection with food, which is obviously the whole focus of the podcast here. However, if you do find the story to be interesting yourself, I highly suggest that you go do your own research and really see the extent of all this. I'm going to start the story by saying that the year before our story begins, there was a particularly harsh winter and a cold and wet growing season. This will come into play later. By the mid-17th century, witch hunts in Europe reached their peak with a man named Matthew Hopkins, a man who declared himself the Witchfinder General, playing a large role in the investigations and executions of witches in England. 
He even wrote a book in 1647 entitled The Discovery of Witches, which outlined his witch hunting methods and was actually used as a guide for many people, both in the old world and the new. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the first execution of a witch took place in the English colonies the same year, in Hartford, Connecticut, after a local flu outbreak. The next year, Massachusetts found its first execution of a witch, with a woman named Margaret Jones, using the methods found in Hopkins' book. Now, even though witch hunting fever was starting to cool down in Europe at the same time, the execution of these two women were the catalyst needed to get everyone in a fervor in the colonies. It should be noted, however, that this was a phenomenon typically seen in New England colonies and not the rest, as these were the areas that were founded by the ultra-fundamentalist Puritans. Okay, now let's go to Salem itself. Salem is going through a bit of a change, which is something that the ultra-conservative mentality hates. There was the town of Salem, which was a growing commercial hub in the area, and then there was the village of Salem, which was a farming hamlet that supported the town. The more fundamentalist people of the village found themselves resenting the mercantilism that was taking place in the town, and to an extent their own village. These people also had a reputation for being pretty nasty, and pretty quick to put up a fight or complain about things at the drop of a hat. In addition to that, there were two major families that lived in the village, the Putnams and the Porters, and they were having a long-standing feud with each other that was helping to bring all of these issues to a fever pitch. Another factor that was taking place was the installation of a new minister in the village, Samuel Paris, who had a hardline stance on even minor issues, putting the parishioners on edge. Paris also played a large role because of his family. Two of his nieces in January of 1692 started to act strange. They would fall on the ground and start screaming, saying all kinds of strange things and contorting their bodies, even saying that they felt like they were being pinched or poked. After being examined by a doctor, they appeared to have nothing physically wrong with them. Though, I mean, in all fairness, we were talking about 1692 medicine, so who knows. But these two girls weren't alone. Soon after Paris's nieces were experiencing these symptoms, more girls throughout the village started to experience very similar ones. Okay, now that's also a very important part of the story, so you're going to want to keep that up there in your bean. Paris's niece and daughter both started to accuse his South American servant, named Tatuba, of being a witch. When brought in for questioning, she denied all charges at first, but after, let's say, enhanced interrogation by her owner, admitted to some light witchcraft. The only reason she did that was to find out who was the culprit in harming these girls. She was then put on trial, and while speaking to the crowd, she began to say that there were other women who were practicing witchcraft, both in Salem and in surrounding areas, all the way to Boston. She named some women that were already in trial with her, but refused to give any other names for people in the surrounding areas. She said that she had been approached by the devil, who asked her to do work for her, but she later denied all this and said that she was forced to saying this after being beaten by Paris. The one good thing about her story was that she was not executed, but rather stayed in prison until being sold to another owner. Well, I mean, being sold to another person wasn't a good thing, but the fact that she lived is, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Oh boy, can't wait to see the comments on this episode. The other two women being accused were already looked down upon in their community, as one of them was a beggar, and the other had married her indentured servant after her husband died and was handling his property. Again, these were two problematic women, and it just seemed like a great excuse to get rid of them. And with this began the fever dream that was the Salem Witch Trials. One of the biggest sources of accusations came from Anne Putnam, 
who just so happened to make it a habit of accusing members of the rival Porter family. What became a problem was that people who were in good standing with the local church were being accused of witchcraft, implying that if people like this could be witches, then anyone could be, only fueling the fire. Now, I want to get into one of the most interesting parts of the story that people tend to gloss over, but I feel it plays a large role in understanding what actually happened here. Few, if any, of these accused women were ever seen doing anything even related to witchcraft. Rather, they appeared in dreams and caused nightmares to these afflicted girls, known as spectral evidence. The thought here is that they were a representation of the devil, but that the devil could only use their form if people gave consent. So therefore, if you appear in my dream and are causing problems to me in a nightmare, that would imply that A, this is actually the work of the devil, and that B, he appeared in your form only because you let him and therefore have some kind of relationship with him. So yeah, sounds pretty solid to me. These accusations became so crazy that a four-year-old girl was accused and interrogated for being a witch, something that she wholeheartedly agreed to. (laughs) Now, if you know anything about kids, you know that this is just garbage because kids will say anything if you give them any kind of push, or even if you don't. Uh, True story, uh, I was just talking to a kid last weekend named Jeremy But every time I talk to him, he demands that I call him Spider-Man. So a four-year-old girl admitting to be a witch doesn't seem to be that far of a stretch. Thankfully, this little girl was let go and released from jail, though her mother, who was also accused of being a witch, gave birth to another daughter in jail who died shortly after. As things were getting crazier and crazier, not only were there more and more people being accused of witchcraft, but it was even being suggested that the people who were doing the accusations themselves were witches. People continued to have these strange fits and see visions of other people in the community, so more and more people were put in jail and interrogated. By the time May rolled around, there were already 62 people in prison, with the first person dying in jail, though not yet executed. The actual trial by juries began in June of that year in the Salem Township. All kinds of strange ways were used to be found as evidence against these people, including the presence of a third nipple, known as a witch's teat. Bridget Bishop was the first to be tried and found guilty, being hanged a week later. Over the next few months, hundreds of people were accused, with many being tried and dozens being hanged. There are two things we should probably mention at this point for the sake of being complete, and that is that first of all, there was no witch actually burned in the New World. They were all hanged and that while the majority of these people that were accused were women, there were actually a few men involved as well. By October, it seemed that people were finally starting to come to their senses and realizing just how crazy all this was. Accusations dried up, and people who were already in prison, including some who actually had execution orders written against them, were released due to being pardoned by the governor of Massachusetts. Trials themselves officially ended in May of the next year. Thankfully, within a few years, the people of Salem officially repented and asked forgiveness of the local community for their being responsible for the death of many, many innocent people. Ann Putnam, the most vocal accuser of them all, publicly asked for forgiveness in 1706. She said that her accusations were not out of malice, but rather by being misled by Satan himself. In 1711, a bill reversed judgment against 22 of the convicted individuals, with financial compensation being given both to the survivors and the families of the executed. 
The Salem Witch Trials have generally been considered one of the prime examples of what can happen when paranoia runs rampant in a community, and has later been compared to such things as the McCarthy Communist Trials of the 1950s. In fact, we still use the expression witch hunt when talking about somebody who is being politically persecuted just to find fault where none exists. But what exactly started this in the first place? It's pretty much accepted by everybody that there was no witchcraft involved at all. And although fear of witches was a part of the culture at the time, something must have lit the fuse. There's been a number of theories put out there, but there's one that I find particularly convincing and has gained a lot of steam in recent years. Ergot poisoning. There's a very good chance that you've never heard of it and have no idea what I'm talking about because this is something that we don't really deal with anymore. Ergot is a type of fungus that grows on grains under certain conditions. Remember how I told you that the year before all this, there was a particularly harsh winter that led to a cold and damp growing season? That's absolutely perfect growing conditions for ergot. Something else to consider is that ergot tends to be especially attracted to rye grain, and rye was one of the staple crops of the village of Salem. Ergot poisoning has two major types of symptoms. One is a very physical class of symptoms known as gangrous ergotism. This involves compounds from the ergot forming crystals inside the body and causing the skin to peel and for the tissue to actually die on various parts of the body. This is a very painful group of symptoms and is known as St. Anthony's Fire because the monks from the Order of St. Anthony were so adept at curing it historically. The fact that it has such a common name tells you just how frequently people were consuming ergot up to this point. The other type of ergotism is known as convulsive ergotism. These convulsive symptoms included painful seizures and spasms, diarrhea, that always comes up in our stories for some reason, tingling, itching, mental effects including mania or psychosis, headaches, nausea, and vomiting. For those keeping score at home, these seem exactly like the types of symptoms that these young women were experiencing at first. And of course, if you threw in the visions of their neighbors and devils and all these sorts of things, that definitely fits the mania and psychosis. Can we say for sure that eating ergot was what caused the Salem Witch Trials? Well, just like with a lot of historical mysteries, there's really no way for knowing if that's what the cause was, or if it was a contributing factor, or not even a factor at all. But you do have to admit that a lot of these factors seem to line up with each other, which is why so many people are now starting to believe this theory. Of course, while ergotism due to infected rye may have started the hysteria within the community, the fact is that even the people themselves recognized how they were the ones that let it get so far out of control. If that's all it took to pit neighbor against neighbor like that, it's safe to say that for whatever the quote-unquote reason was, it was really just the straw that broke the camel's back. Thankfully, the people of Salem did come to their senses and ergotism is something that really isn't as common as it used to be. In fact, when I was doing research for this episode, I was only able to find that the last outbreak of ergotism in history, at least according to my research, uh, was that of some bad wheat in Ethiopia in the early 2000s. A large reason for that is obviously because we know more about agriculture than we did back then, but also even if there was ergot infecting a crop, we now have the luxury of just buying food from somewhere else in the world. Back then, either people really didn't understand ergot, or they were just so desperate to eat something because they were really on their own when it came to growing their own food. Remember that ergot tends to grow in years of bad crops, 
So it makes sense that even for people who understand ergot and ergotism, they figured that mm, eating a little bit of bad fungus is better than starving to death. And that about does it for this episode of Delicious History. Uh, I know this was a bit longer than most of our episodes we've had so far, and I really debated whether or not to split it up into two episodes, but I felt, you know, at the end of the day, it was better just to keep it as it was. Let us know what you think by contacting us on either our social media or our website. Until next time, remember that we all write our own history, so make yours delicious. Delicious.